Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast version from iTunes and other leading providers. I am your host, Scott Dr. G. Exqualify, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Get your copy if you don't have it yet. Available on Amazon. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your continued support and interest. My guest today is drummer, singer, composer, Neftali Santiago, also known as Funkadrill, based on the key role he played as a member of Mandrill, the progressive 1970s New York-based ensemble that fused soul, funk, and world music influences to become one of the most original, accomplished and respected bands of his generation. One unfamiliar with their work might approximate their unique blend by imagining what it would sound like if you combined prime era Santana, War, and Earth, Wind, and Fire, although in truth, those famous acts were as influenced by Mandrill as Mandrill was by them. And in, in fact, going back to the uh, early 70s, in a lot of cases, Mandrill was actually headlining shows that a lot of bands like that performed at. So back then they were definitely the mighty, mighty mandrel. The group was formed in Brooklyn in 1968 by brothers Rick, Lou, and Carlos Wilson, all of whom were born in Panama, but raised in New York. Building its reputation on intense live performances and conceptual albums, Mandrel charted and received radio play with songs that included Ape is High, Get It All, Fence Walk, Hang Loose, Mango Meat, Positive Thing, and Funky Monkey. All told, the band released 11 albums from 1970 to 1982 and four different labels, with the greatest impact being the first five records they cut for Polydor that included the group's third LP and biggest success, 1973's Composite Truth. That peaked at number eight on Billboard's Soul Albums chart. That also happens to be the record that brought Neftali Santiago into the fold to help bring out the true funk. Band members went their separate ways in the early 1980s, but the past few years in particular has seen Iftali becoming more active with projects that include finally releasing a compilation of tracks recorded by his band Santiago in 1976 to 1978, delivering an amazing slab of vintage-sounding funk with late great P-Funk members Gary Scheider and Cordell Boogie Mawson called Release the Funk, and this year assembling an ace lineup called Funkadrill Presents the Drill Experience to bring the Mandrill sensation back to the stage once again. During his fascinating career, Naftali has performed or toured with dozens of famous acts, including Sly and the Family Stone, Stevie Wonder, Eric Clapton, Deep Purple, the Isley Brothers, James Brown, Cameo, and the Ohio Players, and so many others. Through it all, he's always been driven to keep the music honest, real, rhythmic, and of course, funky. With all that, Niftali, how are you? So glad to have I'm you joining. Great. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So glad to have you. Yeah. So now you're coming from your studio in, in California, right? That's correct. Whereabouts? Uh, in Van Nuys. In Van oh, Nuys. Okay. It's, it's really nice. It's an old 1923 house, and it's, it's all wood, which uh, lends itself great to, uh, for recording has a loft where I have the uh, control room and then I use all the rooms in the house for for different things drums so we record live here like we did back in the day 
you know, at the same time, no overdubbing. A few vocals or whatever, but we can record 16 tracks at, at the same time here. So that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> Very nice. So, yeah, San Fernando Valley, I know it well. I, I grew up uh, more on the west side in the Culver City, Santa Monica area. But actually, okay. as a kid, I was raised in San Fernando Valley, too. So, oh. yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, this isn't home for me, as you know. You know, but it is for now. Right. Yeah. Well, of course, I'm coming from Charlotte now, so we've kind of switched places a little bit. We switched coasts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I noticed you don't have the, the, the top hat today. I was going to ask you about well, that. And it's right here, and, and I figure since we're talking about so many different things that, you know, I, I, I wouldn't wear it, you know, but it's right here. You know, I'll show it to you. It's uh, probably... Uh, well, no, it is. It's a mandrel icon, and um, I have to I have to put it in a case like this with locks on it. Well, wow. you know, and treat it like it's gold because it's been it's been a uh, taken so many times off my head. You know, um, but here's the hat. <laughs> well, now how did what's the story behind the hat? Oh man, that goes back to uh, 1974. We are on tour with um, Savoy Brown, Status Quo, Canned Heat, Argent. Yeah, that was the lineup. And we were in Odessa, Texas. And it was extremely hot. Now, I'm, I'm from New York. And, and it didn't seem like it was hot. So I was laying by the pool and I fell asleep. And when I woke up and went inside with the air conditioner, my face just started cracking. The sunburn was so bad that it was it was severe sunburn, you know. Could, the sun was that hot, and I just didn't realize it, you know. And I'm kind of light skinned, and I burn really fast, and um, so I look kind of looked like a monster going on stage, you know. Uh, this was before we went on, you know, and some guy from the audience gave me his his top hat, and he says, "Do you want to wear this?" And and I put it on, and and it covered my face. And I said, wow, that's great. And so I tried to give it back to him, and he wouldn't take it. So it's it's been a part of my my career ever since, you know, through Mandrill. You know, and it's stuff grows on the hat. Lots of things that people have given me over the years. I went to Russia, you know, and that, that was great. And I got something from there. And I, you know, so it's 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 a it's a living, it's a living <laughs> experience the hat, you know. Wow. So for all those who don't know, you know, slash, you know, followed you, not the other way around. So. Oh, oh, yeah. As far as that top hat goes. Yeah. You, know, you see that on just outside of town. That's where it first appears. Yeah, I would say uh, compared to yours, that would be the other most iconic one that I think of. Yeah. And Abe Lincoln, yeah. you know, yeah. but. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. All right. Were you ready to get into some questions? Sure. All right. So let's go back uh, a ways, even before Mandrill, and talk about, you know, how you first got into music and drumming. Um, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how music became just central in your life. Okay. Uh, well, my father was uh, in the service. So um, although I was born in Spanish Harlem, 
we traveled a lot, him being in the service. And uh, Germany was a place we visited a lot. And, you know, my father was a drill sergeant. And he was also one of Patton's drivers uh, during World War II. Hmm. So he's a famous dad. He's a famous soldier. And it was really hard growing up in his house. You know, very strict, you know, uh, very disciplined to the point of abuse. It was bad, hmm. you know. So um, when music came into my life was, was when the Vietnam War came. And my dad got his orders that he was going to become one of the first Green Berets and train troops to go to Vietnam. And so when that happened, the family had to move off base for the first time into public. And we wound up in Willingboro, New Jersey, where, where uh, if you know 22 Somerset Drive, that album, which we'll get to later, uh, everything came out of there. My whole music career came out of there. My brother was a guitar player. And he had a band, a top 40 band that used to rehearse at the house. Now, when my dad went to Vietnam, it was like freedom for everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, the, it was beautiful. Uh, my hair was split down the middle during high school. And when he left, I, I started picking it out and, be, and it became an Afro and stayed that way, <laughs> you know? And um, so that house became interesting because I would just sit down behind the drummer's drums that he left them at our house while they were rehearsing. And I just started playing drums, uh, no lessons or anything. And uh, I formed my own band after that there at, and, you know, regional, you know, called the Reeves. And uh, it was a horn band. And we did like a lot of Buddy Miles and Jimi Hendrix, Cream, mm -hmm. uh, everybody, you know, Santana, Mandrill. <laughs> I was in love with Mandrill, you know, so in my top 40 phase that that was really cool. But then I started getting asked to um, do these chitlin circuits, you know, and uh, so I was playing with Barbara Mason, you know, and uh, the Shy Lights, the Manhattans, you know, all, all those bands we would do. They would only do like four songs, you know, and but the, the, the same band was behind everybody, you know. And so it, it was, it was a learning experience for me because I was only 15, mm. you know, <laughs> and uh, so school wasn't something that I was very interested in and, 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 and I didn't finish school and I guess I was entertaining to my teachers because I would tell them all these stories about what I did at night, you know, and um, it was, it was like I was two different people, you know, and uh, how they got me into these clubs and to do this, I don't know, but. You know, it was a blessing to to learn from, you know, great people that went before me, you know, and uh, and showed me the way, you know, um, rhythmically as a drummer, as you know, with all those doo-wop bands, all the plop plops have to be right in place. They can't be late. It makes them look real stupid and they don't like it. So I learned dynamics mm -hmm. and all those bands went to bring it way down, you know, so it was a very cool experience. You know, that, that kind of brought me up to, to meeting Buddy Miles and uh, at this concert that he did in Burlington, New Jersey. And I got him to sign a ticket. And when I joined Mandrill and, and he was actually on a big tour that we headlined, uh, I showed him that ticket. And uh, it was a, we, became, we became friends after that, you know. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure you want to go back. 
So, you know, did you ever see that movie, The Great Santini? When you're talking about your dad, I was thinking about that movie. If you haven't, you got to see that. Man, he, he was something else. I tell you, I need to write a book about him because he, he was something else. And I'm a junior. And um, I happen to look like him. And I have pictures with him and Patton. And it's just a, it's a trip. It's a trip. You know, well, one real quick funny story. When he came back from Vietnam, uh, uh, which was a long time after the war because he brought POWs out. Mm -hmm. And so he came back later, like years later. He There was this thing around his neck and we didn't know what it was. It was like a ring of things. And so we asked him, Poppy, what is that? And he says, well, those are ears. <laughs> and I said, ears? And, and, and they were ears from people that shot at him and missed him, obviously, and that he killed him and he wore the ears because going through the jungles uh for everybody that was watching because there was there, there were Viet Cong all in in the jungles watching him uh he he was like feared you know and so when he came home uh he had malaria and he went crazy a little bit and there were 13 cop cars at 22 Somerset Drive and and it was amazing how none of them would enter the house because they knew knew he was a green beret you know, and uh, so that was it was so funny to just sit there in the house and wait for them to wait till he calmed down till they entered. You know, he wasn't hurting anybody, you know, but uh, he was there because I was in the house with him, myself and my mother. So he was back in Vietnam for for a minute and he thought we were Viet Cong, you know, and so he went through a whole trip, you know. So it was it was it was a uh, very interesting growing up in that house when he came back musically wow it makes me wonder too you know so did you uh take that forward and be disciplined in what you did musically or did you kind of go the other way and kind of rebel and try to be you know undisciplined and just be a free-for-all and i was a hippie i was a true hippie i was a true hippie when he came home you know i mean i feared the man let's face it I would comb my afro down, but it was still long. And then when I got out, I'd comb it back up when I went to school, you know. So that went on for a little while till till Mandrill came along, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I went the opposite way. I was totally against uh, violence. And of course, when I started playing, when he knew I became a musician while he was at war, because that's when it happened, he thought I was was going to be gay. You know, that it was a very feminine thing to do, that I was junior and I was going to take after him, but that just wasn't going to happen. It just was not meant to be. Hmm. No. So, um, well, that was heavy stuff. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry so, about that. <laughs> uh, no, no, that's fascinating. Fascinating. Um, so you, t you mentioned Buddy Miles. Who are some of yeah. your other early influences in playing the drums, would you say? Yeah, well, definitely him, Mike Shreve, uh, Ginger Baker. You know, uh, those three really stick out. You know, um, you know, some of the funk drummers, I, I was not into their styles because I was already um, developing my own style. And... I was like moving from band to band to band before Mandrill. And before Mandrill, uh, uh, I joined a band called the Ghetto Fighters. Mm -hmm. 
and they were Jimi Hendrix backup band. I remember them, the the Allen Brothers, the Twins. Uh, they they changed their name so many times, the Alims, and uh, uh, but I went into Electric Lady recording with them before I did Mandrill, and which was a great experience because I I got to meet Eddie Kramer and you know experience you know uh, the studio, you know. Little did I know I was getting ready to go right back in there with Mandrill, you know. Wow. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, I, I know you were a huge fan of, of Mandrill. Uh, you said yeah. that. I knew that coming in. Um, yeah. and, and I heard the story on another interview you did about that you went and you told them you, you wanted to be their drummer and so forth. Yeah. So if you could just kind of pick it up from that uh, and tell everybody, you know, how you, you did that and, and how you actually became a full-fledged member. Okay, well, well, as you know, that story exists on different interviews, but I still like telling it because it's a great story. Um, I rehearsed the first two albums intently at Twenty Two Somerset Drive, and my mom was on me like a like like a slave driver, you know, you know. But she didn't need to be. My I so I learned every lick, every lick, and then I tried to anticipate something else is going to happen at that audition. So I need to be ready for something else to happen. So I just didn't want to rehearse what they were doing. So um, before the audition, that was a Friday night where I met them for the first time. And my friend got me backstage. And um, I wasn't even scared. I was very bold because I knew what was going to happen. Uh, their drummer he felt like uh he was he just wasn't right for the band you know and he did a drum solo there's a drum solo in mandrill the song man the first song of every set was mandrill and there's a drum solo and this was the spectrum and it was mandrill war and bobby walmack and i i felt like that solo was was just a little on the weak side you know and and i wanted to just run up there instead i ran back there and said, I'm your next drummer. And I just blurted it out like that, you know? And they all started laughing, which I expected them to laugh, but I'm, I'm looking at them like I'm serious, you know? I mean, I'm 19, but I'm not a kid, you know? I'm younger than they are, you know? So I, I did take a piece of toilet paper. I wrote down my phone number. I gave it to Carlos Wilson. And I said, look, you know, uh, give me a call because I, I really want to audition for the band. And Charlie says, oh, well, he started laughing because he'd just given the band his notice. And he was leaving the band. So it, it, was, it was crazy. The timing was perfect. Stars aligned. It was aligned, man. It was meant to happen. It was so meant to happen because I was really green. I didn't know nothing about nothing. Mandrill wasn't like playing behind, uh, you know, a... Uh, uh, a a, 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 a line of singers, you know, Mandrill was, you were a part of the band, you know? So, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, I got the call on Tuesday, come audition when today. Yeah. And, uh, so Willingboro's two hours from New York city. So I, I was singing at Stevie wonders, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, you know, I'm going to New York city back to New York where I came from, you know, to audition for Mandrill, and I just could not believe it. 
it was like surreal to me and here I come and and there's a line of people like there was for a concert or something and I'm going what's going on and I noticed drummer drumstick bags everywhere and it was 30 drummers 30 drummers were lined up you know and it's like still the confidence remained you know it's like man I know this music and wherever they're gonna take it it's gonna be funkier I know it I just know it you know I could I could sense it in, in their live performances which I which I tried to kind of like you know uh, follow the band live you know so it was very interesting um, it came down to a uh, uh, me auditioning uh, what uh, I think ape is high and then one one really cool thing I got to do was jam fence walk before it came fence walk mm. you know it was just a jam you know so it was something they were working on they were ready to go back in the studio at the time that he gave his notice so they you know it was time to record the new album and and um so you know uh carlos said well the song goes like this mm -hmm. I said, okay and i laid into it and boy history is is it, when we went in the studio it was just man it was just magic so it came down to me and dennis davis which the story is Dennis Davis is became Roy Ayers drummer and then he went on to be um, David Bowie's drummer you know and the guys called me right away and said you got the gig you know I I um went on tour with them for a month before they actually let me play because I've never been on tour before and I never was on a plane before and yeah. they took a lot of planes you know and I'm going, no, I'm ready, I'm ready. No, 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 it's not about your playing. Other things are going to happen on the road that you have to be aware of and you have to get kind of broken into. The first one was vomiting on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I could never get used to that. It was it was crazy and they were right. It's a good thing you didn't have the hat yet. No, <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> uh, so I would just watch the show, you know, patiently every night. You know, see if I could pick up some things from Charlie. But man, I was ready. I, I was so ready. You know, uh, and so my first gig was in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and it was with Deep Purple and Elf. And a lot of people don't know who Elf is, and neither did I. But there are three little guys that are like four feet ten and under. <laughs> <laughs> but they played some big music. They have one album, I think. You know, and, and you know who Deep Purple is. And and Mandrill in the middle of that. And 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 I was so excited because up until then, like for for uh, for um composite truth, I was playing Charlie's drums. And I talked the band into letting me use my own drums for my first gig. But they were a set of drums from Sears. I put orange contact paper around it but they sounded good and they looked like buddy miles drums and they were tuned like buddy miles drums and i knew those drums the only problem is is you had to kind of have a, a weight in front of them or else the the bass drum would slide off mm -hmm. so i i let the roadie know that during my drum solo he was looking at some girl or something he got distracted and the bass drum fell off the stage during my drum solo on my first gig with mandrill <laughs> and, and and so they picked it up and I, and I finished and the crowd went crazy and it's like you know I was able to pick out my own drum set and you know uh, and so that that was that was so cool you know so 
What was I know that um, Mandrelias, her second album, was one that just really hooked you. What was it specifically about their sound, their approach, whatever that tell you, that captivated you so much in the first place? I'll tell you what it was, man. It was the unity. The unity. Each song was so different that you knew there were more composers, you know, than three guys. You knew it. You could feel it. And and but when they came together especially on that album fudgy case solomon was the key to mandrel is there's no question about it the bass player he he's he was a magical bass player he not only plays bass on it uh but he sings on it too you know and his voice is really really uh noticeable if you know his voice and so uh when i heard that because they took it to the next level they went from uh mandrel the album mandrel to that was psychedelic to now they were picking it up going a little urban you know more rock and roll a little funky you know and uh and i love that i love that and that's that's when i went mandrel is when i really got on fire to to like you know see where the band was going to go next you know and you know um mandrel is was released early 72. we went in to record composite truth late 72 that's how bad the, the the band wanted to get back in the studio and i, I think we should probably talk about that how, how that was well those were the days when they would you know hit it like so so hard and fast like that um the, the wilson brothers so would you say they were musical geniuses or what i mean they were so talented you know i know a lot of a lot of brother combinations like I know the Chambers brothers, I know the Allen brothers. It seems like I, I play with a lot of brother bands, <laughs> you know. But the Wilson brothers, Carlos Wilson, Lou Wilson, uh, are, are the musical geniuses behind the Wilson brothers. But without Rick, it couldn't happen because Rick was like the glue that brought the Wilson brothers together, you know. And they had a, a the three of them had a blend that was. It was a a blood blend, you know, that you only get from being a blood brother, but but they had the talent to go wherever they wanted to go, musically, you know. So I I I I felt that that the Wilson brothers didn't want to uh, um, to uh, 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 copy anybody, but they wanted to become their own entity, but they were influenced by a lot of people. There's no question you hear it in the music. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear you hear Santana, you hear Sly, you hear the Chambers Brothers, you hear all that. But then, as the albums develop, you start hearing Mandro, which which in full bloom was composite truth. You know, yeah. So um, Niftali, so on that first gig though with the Deep Purple, I'm curious yeah. what what was the crowd composition like on a show like that because. You know, later on in, in that decade and just moving forward, you found it was very infrequent to, to find shows where you had such diverse acts on the same bill. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. And it's going to lead us up to the biggest question. How did Funk Festival start? So promoters, well, we were with ATI and ATI handled everybody. So if you had a, a popular album, you were touring with their acts. If you, you know, William Morris, ATI, you were touring with their acts. So uh, there were no, no black tours, 
you know, there were no funk tours. That word was still developing. You know, this was this was all brand new. These were all bands coming out of each other's cities that were now becoming popular. That like like um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, we, we were signed to the same agency, and they went on tour with uh, with with Yes. You know, and and so it was really weird, really weird to play to an all white audience. Because that's what it was. There were no black people there. <laughs> maybe maybe a few black people, but you didn't see them. They could have been there. There's a chance that a few black people were there, but they were definitely into rock and roll. You know, so when we start performing our set, the look on the audience faces was, was amazing. <laughs> it was of shock. It was shock. It wasn't like, what was that? It was more of like, who who is this band? You know, <laughs> and I'll tell you a funny story. Status Status Quo was 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 the headliner, of course. You know, and um, I used to hang out with those guys. You know, after gigs, we and they were playing cards, and then oh, like I was nineteen. You know, it was, it was fun to hang out with different bands. It was it was amazing to me to to all of a sudden know pe these people that I've been buying their records. You know, and um, so uh, hotels used to have these uh, uh, speakers in, in the ceiling and they had, it was tuned to a radio station. And um, so it was tuned to a, a rock radio station that was live, you know? And so the DJ was just coming on and he was saying that he just came from this, you know, status quo concert. And he says, man, you're not going to believe this. I heard this band that you're just not going to believe. And they're all, they're all, they're all thinking that he's talking about them, you know? And, and, and he says, Mandrill. And he looked at me because I was the only one in the band that was in the room. And he says, I was so impressed by the band that I'm going to play their whole album in its entirety right now. <laughs> and it was like, wow, that felt so good to me. You know, and it was like, you could, you could smell the envy. You could smell the envy in the air, you know, but it, it lasted a couple seconds because, you know, when you're out there on the road, everybody has that, uh, that uh, you know, you're supposed to sharpen each other. You're not you're not supposed to ignore each other like you don't exist. You know, I, I like communicating with with other bands. You know, um, so that that was interesting. The it was ten thousand people, ten thousand well, people. Did did that audience makeup kind of influence the band to maybe go a little rockier than they might no. ordinarily? No, no, I think they were already there on Mandrill is. Mm -hmm. That's about as rocky as the band would get. Yeah. So just um, for the audience, that Mandrill is album that you fell in love with, and it's a great album, right before you joined the band, um, had Ape is High, Get It All, and uh, Here Today, Gone Tomorrow is another one I like on that one. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move into Composite Truth, which uh, came, uh, well, you started recording in late 72, and it came out in 73. Yeah. Uh, the band's biggest album coincidence that you joined at that time i don't know i don't think judge. so <laughs> yeah i don't think it was <laughs> this is the cover image although not that record but yeah so so tell me Naftali, how did the uh, sessions for that come together what was the vibe like what was the creative process like oh it was beautiful let me tell you i i was thinking that we were going to start with fence walk since i kind of knew already but the thing of it is, is the album was written. We had a loft. Mandrill had a loft 
on 23rd Street. And that it was big. It was a huge loft. And that's where we did our like a track recording. And that's where songs were formulated before we went in the studio. We put them all together there in the loft. So back in the back in the day, um, all bands jammed before they went in the studio and had ideas together. They just didn't go in the studio, you know, and just record anything. So we 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 jammed songs and then wrote lyrics later. Or maybe Lou would have a, a lyric and we'd write a song later. It all depended. But but we always were in that loft creating the music, you know, and, and the lyric. That's where it all came from. So Polk Street Carnival was the first song that I recorded. And it just so happened to be the most difficult song, I think, that, that a drummer could play. And you can ask anybody that. Uh, I don't know how many drummers have played it, but I actually heard Charlie play it before me. Um, but it's played it, it's played so difficult that uh, the that calypso rhythm with the left hand uh, instead of the right hand played was was unnatural for me, and and I had to I, I had to erase some tapes really quick to even get it down. And we're in the studio playing it, and we really didn't rehearse that song because they already knew it. And they're just like, ah, you'll get it, you'll get it. They did. They were like that on everything. You'll get it, you'll get it. You know. So I really did basically um, re rehearse and record a lot of these songs from from Composite Truth. You know. So uh, uh, that was the first. Uh, another one that was really hard was Golden Stone, Omar song. Now, everybody in the band got a song. The uh, mandrel was run like a democracy. So there's seven guys in the band. Everybody got a song. And then there was a band song. We limited our albums to, to eight songs because of the, the grooves on, on vinyl. We didn't want it to get too thin because the sound would get thin. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have them too thick or else the, the needle would just fall off. So we Just Right was around 17 minutes, 18 minutes, right in that area. So... Everybody got a song. So Omar's song was Golden Stone. And he was into, now this is from Mandrill Is to Composite Truth, Omar had a trans, transformation. He, um, he started studying Sri Chimoy and he cut off all his hair and he had a guru. And he, he had the same guru that Carlos Santana and John, John McLaughlin had. And it was in New York, so he would... He would go there to, to hear Sri Chimoy speak all the time. So he cut his hair off and he wore all white, like on composite, like on just outside of town. And um, that's basically all he wore was that white kind of thing, you know, and, and his whole demeanor was different. Now he was just just so straight. And, and so he was hanging out with John McLaughlin. So Golden Stone was very fusion-like. Yeah. You know, you know, and and so I'm not used to playing music like that, you know, so I really my whole thing of uh, the, the talent that God gave me is is to just be, be able to pick up on something really quick and not really have to understand the timing of it. I, I just need to play it a little bit. And, and I got it. If you if you if you tell me what the timing is, it'll mess me up because I can't do numbers. You don't want to overthink it. Right. You want to feel yeah. it. Yeah, I have to feel it. You know, and that song was so much fun to play. Oh my gosh. 
it was like it was it it it, it would like gave it gave me so much adrenaline towards the end of that it was like we were it just kept going higher and higher and higher and man it was it just it was great. When I listen to it now, it, it's, it comes off to me kind of like a, a Steely Dan meets Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young meets a Chicago Horns. It's like so much going on in that. Yeah, well, that's the melting pot of the band. You know, you've got so many different blends now. Now you got Fudgy K. He's writing and he's Jewish, you know, and and he was really sad at the time. So on Composite Truth, he wrote a sad song, you know, um, Out With The Boys. You know, and, uh, you know, uh, the band brought an orchestra in, you know, to back him up. And 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 it was, you know, the great um, Al Brown was with produced the, the, the string section. And it was a very sad song because his, his girl like left him for to be with with someone else, you know, and um, and it's like fudgy. Does it have to be that song? And it's like, yeah, it has to be that song. And you want, and you see, you whatever song you want gets on the album. Now, how many bands do that? Very democratic. Very democratic. Not very many bands do that because it was kind of a, it was way out of the mandrel that, you know, all the other songs from that album. But I tell you, it's been sampled four times already by rappers. So, you know, there's definitely an element there that was, from the heart, that's what was so beautiful about it. If, if, if he was feeling sad, then you got to express that. You know, you know. Um, now I have to talk about fence walk. Fence walk. When we recorded in a, in a at Electric Lady Studios, but we didn't want to isolate to the point we we were we couldn't see each other, or 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 really hear each other. We just wanted enough isolation to have a control over the mix. We weren't trying to take anything out. If you made a mistake, we were definitely going to do it over again. There was bleed. There definitely was bleed through. So, <laughs> Omar, now he changed. Before, he had this long hair and a beard, and he was, he was all over the place uh, with movement. Now, he's doing the fence walk solo. And he's standing really still, as still as he could be. And and his his neck goes up like this, and these and he has these veins popping out of his neck. And I'm looking over at him and I'm really going, wow, he's like transforming in front of me. I can't believe this. And and so I said to myself, if he's gonna take it higher, I'm gonna take it higher. So I went around the drums and I started hitting that bell, you know, on the four man. It's like, wow. This is incredible. And, and it was like, and then and then we came back down to it. It's like, oh man. It was it was like a roller coaster ride. It was like a roller coaster, and it wasn't over. You know, you, you're still into the song, another verse before it ends, you know. So that was it was so exciting. So exciting. Would they typically play the horn parts live too, or do that later? No. No, no. Uh now. The Wilson brothers overdubbed their horns in the studio, but they didn't play anything that they couldn't play live. Mm -hmm. They put their horns down and sang. You know, they put their horns down and played percussion. You know, that was a little overdubbing that was a little hard to um, to do live. 
you know, uh, but not much. We were basically a live kind of band that, you know, if, if we're not playing it like that on stage, let's not record it that way, you know. So we did some, some on Just Outside of Town, we had to do a lot of creative writing on that album. But we're not done with the... Um, yeah. And that, I mean, that album led off with Hang Loose and Fence Walk. And um, I just seen, uh, I watched on Soul Train this week, that clip of Hang Loose. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most, uh, I would say, intense, heated performances probably of all time on that show. Oh, man, that was something. And you notice Lou Wilson's not there. Hmm. What was the deal there? I mean, you don't hear it, but he's, he's not there. It was really interesting because I don't think Carlos would have taken it that trombone solo, but Coffee wrote Hang Loose. And Coffee wrote Kohello and Coffee wrote Coffee Jam. Coffee wrote a lot of interesting mandrel songs. And Hang Loose was one of them. And it's like, man, the feel of it was so, so, uh, uh, as a drummer, you get a workout on that song. You definitely get a workout. Yeah, I can see know. it. <laughs> and, and again, Omar steps up to the plate, you know, but the, the lyrics, the lyrics were, you know, uh, you just, you know, kind of pertain to today and what we're going through, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, everybody's trying to be somebody, you know, and, and uh, it's Hang Loose is which is just a fun song, man. And that, that, uh, that I'll, I'll just stop there. Uh, Soul Train was 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 uh following we did a concert called randall's island do you know about randall's island that concert well it's it's outside of new york city and it's a football stadium on an island so there's only one way in and one way out and to tell you that story i i have to get into that was really where the first funk festival came from you know, um, because it was Teddy Powell was the first black promoter to to promote um, a funk festival in a stadium. And uh, Mandrel was headlining and it was Rufus, Buddy Miles, Rare Earth, Funkadelic. Yeah. Wow. And Not he bad. shows up with he show yeah, good lineup. He shows up with a Shure Vocal Master sound system. And if 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 your audience doesn't know what that is, if you're in a small club, and you see these little thin column speakers that their music is coming out of, their voices are coming out of, that's basically what it is. It stands about three feet high, and he had maybe six of them in a row on each side. And there were 40,000 people in the stadium and nobody could hear the music. Mm. And it was summertime and people started getting really upset. And they started turning over the carts of the vendors, taking all their money and all their goods. And so it started heating up. And, uh, and so bands didn't want to go on. And George and man, I, I love Funkadelic. I got to stop right now. Funkadelic. We became such good friends on the road. Me personally with Funkadelic. Um, I would I would get on stage many nights with them and jam with them, you know, because Tiki was having a hard time, you know. 
and and I love the brother, man. But you know, if if we don't talk about these things, and nobody knows, you know, that it was hard. It was hard being on the road in the seventies. Every band was creating themselves for the first time, and nobody wanted to come off the road. It you were everybody was 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 on a beam that you had to follow it because you're creating something that's never been created before. And here comes this guy, Teddy Powell, that says, hey, let's make it a tour. And we made it, and he made it a tour. And, and so I got to know those guys really, really well. Back to that concert. So it's not going very well. George and them played for about a half an hour before the, the stage was rushed. And Rare Earth is mainly a white band you know, and they thought, well, you know, um, getting ready was going to be okay, but uh, it wasn't. And so they, they, uh, the, the stage was in the middle, like, you know, where concerts happen at, at the end of, of the stadium. So you have to drive to the dugout, which is in the middle. So you have to drive from the stage into, you know, to get to the dugout, which that's where the dressing rooms were, right? So it's a little journey through the audience. <laughs> while all this is happening so they played a few minutes and then they got off and the people just knocked over their bus you know it was it was wow. it was not nice the, the, they got ugly the crowd got ugly they started throwing bottles you know a uh, buddy miles didn't go on of course rufus didn't go on you know but the chief of police comes backstage and says they're here to see you guys you're the headliner you're going to have to get out there. And I felt like I was in a movie, you know, because I'm looking and I'm seeing what's going on. And it's like, wow, this is not, this is not going well. Is, are we stuck here? And he says, yeah, we're all stuck here. <laughs> we're all stuck here. And it's like, so what do we do? And he says, well, um, we've discussed it. And well, uh, the best solution would be um, um, if you guys went on. <laughs> <laughs> my manager started laughing. He's going, there's no way we're going on that. So he's well, here's here's the thing. Um we we only we only have but so many police in the stadium. And they're all gonna surround the stage. So if that makes you feel any better, you're gonna have all our police joining arms surrounding the stage while you're performing. And but if the people know that that's all we got, uh, th they're already rioting. They've already done what they're going to do. But if you don't go on, they're going to start punching each other because that's that's how riled up they were. So, oh, okay. So, yeah, okay. So we went on. You know, they can't hear us, really, but they saw us. You know, and the crowd's going crazy. It's 40,000 people. That's a lot of people. You know, and they're not really hearing us. And I sing in the band, and I had a boom, you know, that had a gooseneck on it, like you know, because I sing this way, right, like in the middle of it. Somebody threw a bottle, and they broke the bottle, and 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 it broke right on the boom, so it splattered both ways. And I had on glasses, so I didn't get hurt. But after that, and this was maybe a half an hour into the set, you know, our manager said, "Let." Let's cut it. I play barefooted. And so when I went down to get my shoes, the audience had already started rushing the stage. My shoes were gone. And I was barefooted and there's glass all over the floor. I looked up 
and the band's in the limo leaving the stage to go to the dressing room. They left me on stage. They forgot me. <laughs> now, the audience wants some souvenirs. <laughs> and I'm laughing, but it was pretty dramatic at the time. Yeah, I bet. I, you know, my fro was pretty big back in the day. And these girls felt that if they grabbed on hard enough, that they were going to pull a small patch out for souvenirs. So three of them at different three different places were were pulling on my hair, and it didn't want to come out, but some of it did, and I guess it was good enough for them, and uh, and I had a scarf tied around my head, and um, and it was in a knot, and these two girls were pulling choking me, while these other girls were pulling my pants off, oh, I, I mean I'm. I'm shredded out. My my balls, my penis are hanging out of. I'm wearing Daisy Dukes now. <laughs> they ripped my pants off, you know. And I'm I'm like humiliated, man. I'm like you know, uh, and I'm looking up, and 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 they're done. Everybody's done, and they're running now because you know the 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 police have, the police totally just walked out, you know. And so the everybody could go home now. And it was like I went back, you know to the <laughs> to the dressing room to find out that all my clothes were stolen and i looked at everybody and i says is anybody else's bag gone and no sure enough nobody's was so i had to wear carlos's wilson's clothes on soul train which was the very next day now i gotta look at it again for just for that yeah well they look like they're oversized because they don't fit me <laughs> That's yeah, a funny story, man. Wow, that's incredible. I'm glad you lived through it. That, yeah, I did. I, it could have been bad, but but it wasn't. That doesn't seem like a good, uh, you know, argument to make to to get the funk festival concept moving forward. I know, I know, I know. But you see, that was an incident. It really got a lot better. You know, he learned from it. We still worked with him. You know, all the bands still worked with him. Uh, uh, but but here comes another black promoter which was Bill Washington in Washington, D.C. And he put on the Duff Festival. Um, that was Composite Truth time. When we're, when we're, Composite Truth was out and it was peaking on the radio, um, college radio embraced it like it was, every dorm was playing, playing that album. It was on everybody's turntable at parties. You know, it, it was, it was the album to listen to, you know, and, and it had to be because we did not have the hits that War or Earth, Wind & Fire did. And and still, they had to um, open up for Mandrill. You know, Funkadelic was Funkadelic. Now, P-Funk was different. But Funkadelic was a struggling band on the road. And God bless them, man. They, they're, they're true story about what it takes to, to be true to what you are and who you are as a musician was those guys would get in one room while while they were on tour with us while we were headlining and all share one room you know and all the freaking and whatever all went on in that room and the and whatever went on went on in that room and you know boogie come by my room he's like you got your own room <laughs> and I was going, <laughs> it's like yeah man you can sleep in here and it's like we became really good friends and they would drive to each gig in a car and miss a lot of gigs because it was impossible it the mileage it was just it was impossible but they made it to the duff festival in washington dc 
and that was an all-day festival and like i said it was it was composite truth peak and chocolate city was was let's face it washington dc is chocolate city mm -hmm. and mandrill wanted to leave to go to the next gig so we told funkadelic they would have to close the show knowing that they were going to miss the next gig now i know that sounds bad but to the audience now they were there from noon we went on at 1 30 in the morning and we played an hour plus and then funkadelic so that was real people were in that stadium a long long time and to me that's when funkadelic realized that something bigger was about to happen to them because that was the break that's the break that i saw and that's the break that that I, when i when i saw them again they missed that next gig of course on the next gig, i said man you're going to get a that's going to go a long way for you guys that was like uh 73 74 what year was that 73 yeah yeah so you, you mentioned war and um the one track on composite truth don't mess with people yeah you know did that influence um uh, the world uh, slipping into darkness, and then also um, um, get up. The Marley tune also was had the the riff seems similar to me. Well, you know, "Don't Mess with People" was a song that was Carlos Wilson's creation. That that was his baby, you know, and we would we would sit down and listen to everybody's album, you know, new albums that were coming out. You know, um, nobody wanted to sound like anybody else. I don't think uh, uh, we are all kind of innovators of each one of our, our styles of funk was different from each other, I think, uh, enough to stamp uh, your own label on it. But Don't Mess With People was more politically driven than it was musically driven. Um, uh, but but the interesting part about that song is I'm not playing drums on that song. Mm. Yeah. And I, I told that story on another interview. And then Omar gets on the internet and says, uh, that that's not true. Neftali did play drums on that song. And no, I didn't. You see, Omar was really into the whole Sri Chinmoy thing. So he was on his way out of the band. He wasn't really paying attention to all the inner stuff that was going on. I mean, I would hang out. And, you know, you, the things that people do, you know, uh, when you hang out and, and you know, I was, I was into it, man, you know, and um, so, so I was there and when, when he tried to show me the beat, um, it's not that I didn't get the beat, but he was playing it so well, I looked at him and he looked at me and he says, do you mind if I play it? And I'm going, no. And you know that it's not me because it doesn't even sound like me he speeds it up and slows it down and that's not my style at all i mm. never do that you know i'm like a rock <laughs> you know it's like boom you hear that and he plays with timbali sticks so you hear the lightness of his feel on that you know and um so was he influenced I don't know. I guess you have to look at the years. Is it the same years or was that album out before it's, Composite it's, Truth? It's close. That's what I was wondering. It's very close. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I don't know. I don't yeah. think so. I don't think so. I think he was more into 
you know, because because it's a pretty difficult drum beat. Well, I was thinking that I mean, War could have been influenced by that. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's yeah. a pretty difficult drum beat. You know, it, it's not it's not simple to play at all. That there's a lot of movements within that song. You know, you know, and it's like man, you know, the message is you know we're tired of the government, you know, telling us what to do, man. And it's like, you know, don't mess with us because if you do. <laughs> You're gonna hurt yourself, man. It's it's. I don't know. We should pull that song out and start doing it. I was just gonna. Well, I was gonna say that the message is still very relevant today, yeah. as are yeah. so many of those messages from then. In a lot of ways, unfortunately. 